And I talked about how you can look at it, I go swimming regularly. And I talked about how you can look as if you're swimming in shallow water, but you're actually walking along the bottom. So the idea is that the, that the water, the weight in the water is God and faith, our faith in God. But if we, we look as if we're walking in it, but actually we've got our feet on the bottom. And what I think what I want to talk about today is consistency. So the way that I get good at swimming, so that I don't have to, I, I swim at Northgate Arena where the way, it's like the unusual, like the good shape pool, whereby when you go across a lane, the lane is the same depth all the way along, which is unusual often you swim in the shallows and keep coming back. That's not how it works there. And I like that because I can have the water sort of wasted all the way along. And that, that's when I'm not strong at swimming, that's quite safe because if I get tired, I can pull my feet there. But the way I get good at swimming, so I can do the whole length, is by going consistently. And consistency is key to doing anything well. And when the inconsistency creeps in, and I'm, I'm saying I think this is an example of inconsistency, the story of Abraham, we are not where or what we want to be. And if we're doing it in matters of faith, we're not where God intends for us to be. So here in chapter 20, spoiler alert for the person who's doing next time, we're going, to, we're going to see the birth of Isaac soon. That is coming up. And that's a really good moment for Abraham. Not too long ago, we had the story of Lot and Sodom last week, but before that, we had, um, we had Abraham interceding on behalf of Sodom. So it's a good moment. And in the middle, We've got this bad moment. We've got a failure of the spiritual man. This man is not a novice. He's not a beginner. And he's not at the outset of his spiritual walk. He's one of the giants of the faith. In chapter 15, Abraham had exercised faith in what God has said. And God had credited to him as righteousness. And chapter 19, that's when we saw the success of his intercession this morning. Whenever we study the life of an intuitive in the Bible, in a sense, we've been doing Genesis, but a lot of it has been in our England, so it is a bit like a character study. And we've been looking at that over the past few weeks. We have a bit of a pause for Christmas, but before then. Whenever we study any individual in the Bible, there are going to be principles to apply, and there are going to be parents to avoid. Just because something is in the Bible does not mean that it's exactly what it's to do. Sometimes it's a warning of don't do this. Because we, we, we see what happens. We had some of that last week and we saw what was going on a lot. So I've got three points that I want to divide this into. The first point is going to take most of the sermon and I've got two for one. Okay, so if you're thinking when is the second point it does come, most of it has ended up in the first point. The first point is, I want us, it's about noticing things. I want us to notice the environment in which Abraham is wealthy. If you've been following 
their story. Abraham is well used to moving around. He moves around a lot. And he finds himself in a new place often. And whenever we find ourselves in a new place, there are new opportunities and there are new challenges. And being in this new territory that he's in, which is Gerard, which is where he saw John. So he goes through various places, he saw John, and he's extended in Gerard. So this new territory has got with it some real uncertainties. And on the basis of those uncertainties, his faith is challenged. And Alistair, I've listened to Alistair Begg preach on this, and I'm going to quote bits of what he said. He, he said he felt that um, Abraham might have been saying to himself, as I face this new chapter of my life, am I going to live out of faith? Or am I going to walk the route of fear and seek to deal with it by my own human humility? And again, I want to just emphasize this is a spiritual man. This guy is held up to as an example of all the great character witnesses, of all the people that he mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. He's a good guy. We're supposed to, we're supposed to emulate his example. But not all the time. Some of the story is not good. And that actually gives me more encouragement for the Bible is real. Abraham was a real person. He messes up sometimes. And whenever we have a change in our circumstances, and we all have changes in our circumstances often, it brings to us the same sort of test. When we're doing well, we're in routine, and life is okay, things are ticking over quite nicely, thank you. There's, you know, we're okay. And we start to rely on our own strength. There's nothing really to, to sort of lift us up to spiritual heights and make us feel really good about our faith. Everything is just plodding along quite nicely. And then a new set of circumstances arrive, and that might be news of unemployment, the visit to the doctor turns out to be something serious. And I know that, you know, as, I, as I'm talking about these things, you know, we are a church and we are a family, which means that all of us will be facing. Um, difficult things, and I know some of the things I'm going to touch on today, touching on some of those difficult things. But I feel that this is what God would have me say. So I've tried to, the examples I've tried to give, I've tried to make them broad. So please don't feel like I'm singling you out. We've all experienced these things. You know, maybe the teenagers that we saw all rock solid going to the Lord are telling us suddenly what's really been going on in our lives. Maybe our spouse or our best friend has failed us. Maybe a really good group of friends that we knew from church have moved away, and now we've realised how much of our faith was actually dependent on them. There's a new environment, a new challenge, a new chapter, it's a new journey. How are we going to respond? But what Abraham forgot is what we often forget, is that God goes before us. He knows about every change before it even happens. He knows about all of our circumstances. He knows about the end and flow of our life. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the words of our mouths before we speak them. I'm paraphrasing Psalm 139. He knows when we sit down and we stand up. He knows us thoroughly. 
The psalmist says, such knowledge is high, I cannot attend to it. God knows me and you as intricately as that. My name is with you, your name is with you, it's all written on the palms of his hand. Every hair on my head is numbered. Not a sparrow falls to the ground that he doesn't know about. So, I, you, we, can be completely sure we know about the changing circumstances of our lives. So why is it then that when circumstances change, do we find ourselves in the perils of inconsistency? Abraham, instead of placing his faith in the friendship with God, placed his confidence in an old scheme, a scheme he had used many times before. And the eagle-eyed you will have noticed that there was a similar episode recently in this narrative. If you look at part chapter 12, this lovely details about Sarah being his sister <coughs> is there. But actually, one thing that Alistair then picks up, which is interesting, if you look at chapter 20, this passage we've got in verse 13, Abraham says, it's sort of is there without comment, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say he is my brother, which he thinks implies that he's asked Sarah to do this multiple times, not just the times that are mentioned in 20 and 12. And that's one of the, if you think about it, it's one of the most unbelievable statements by spiritual joy into the faith. I want you to show that we love for me, Sarah, by pretending you're not married to me. I'm going to put marriage in jeopardy every time you move out. My grandparents were in the RAF, and that meant that they moved frequently. Sometimes they'd spend two or three years in one place, but often they would go, they might spend six weeks in a place and then move on. So they'd have to pack and go, they'd often get three or four weeks notice, um, which meant my, my Grandma brilliant if you were moving the house. She was ace moving the house because she'd done it about 25 times in her lifetime. Can you imagine if every time they did that, my grandmother asked her to pretend that they weren't married? And this happens, and Abraham's motivation for this is his fear of what is going to happen, that he is going to be safer as a single man with a sister. Than he will be as a married man or wife. That's his motivation, and that's the view of the culture we live. But it's still a really strange thing to do. And he's moved, despite his desire, we've got lots and lots of examples through the narrative of his desire to go forward with God and walk with God. But he's moved from a path of faith into rather fear. And if you look at the narrative, he's plagued by inconsistency. Last of all, it's really interesting, which is the best of men are just men at best. We're humans, but that's all we are. And also, like the most common of lies that we tell, that we tell that ourselves are okay, it's a half lie. I mean, there's no such thing as a half truth or a half lie, and that is a lie. But Sarah is actually his half sister, which we also might think is because in our modern days that wouldn't be allowed, they would be too closely related to get married. But back then, it was allowed. So it's half right. But something's half right is actually wrong. 
story, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, I don't feel so bad about my own inconsistency now. Because if Abraham can do it, and maybe you've even got as far as judging him and thinking, oh, fancy what he did. I'm sorted. I've got this. I know that I'm doing my Christian walk. Another clear point I would make is this story has been going on for many, many years. Abraham's been walking with God for decades. We don't actually know what gap there is between the account in chapter 12 of the lie then and with the the account now in chapter 20, but he's still falling into the same pattern. You ever make the same mistake twice? 50 times maybe? And despite all my longings after God, all the way that I want to be something to him, I fail him every day. The new circumstances and the stress of circumstances reveal what was in Abraham's heart. Have you ever been in a challenging situation and been disappointed? Horrified even. But what it revealed about your heart? It's easy to feel like you're in a good relationship with Jesus, where it's very well, and you're like really great all going fantastically well. And I, when I became a Christian in 2005, I was kind of in that place. It was new, more exciting, feels fresh, praying is easy, Jesus was feeling very immediate and close. And then in November um, 2007, I find myself in the back of an ambulance on blue lights going from Macclesfield to Warsaw Hospital with a suspected brain hemorrhage. And suddenly, as well as thinking about my family, thinking about how much I love them, I started to think about what the Bible said about that combined and the gospel. And I can actually clearly remember thinking, I, would go, I might be about to get an opportunity to know whether the gospel is true. Because I might be about to die. And when you face that, your perception of the gospel and what it means radically changes. And I think it's probably true. That happened to me when I was 27. And I've always said that in many ways that experience was a gift. Because it changed my perspective. <clears throat> and I would guess that probably some people don't get to that place. You know, I'm, I'm a lecturer, I work with young people. I love that, that's my vocation, I love doing it. But one of the things that's great about them is they're optimistic and they're wonderful. All the downsides are optimistic and invincible. I have to deal with the consequences of when they thought they were invincible and they weren't. It's one of the perils of youth is that we do think we're more And as we get older, what the Bible says about our, our relationship with God and what, it, what our relationship with Jesus means and has a new perspective on it because you know, we need to get this right. We get shown up for what we are and this experience has shown up Abraham for what he is. 
And I want to draw our attention to another time in the Bible where this happens. So we're going to move from Genesis right into the Gospels. So I want us to turn, well, several accounts of this, but I like the one in Mark. So let's turn to Mark 14 and verse 27. So Jesus has just been telling, we're kind of getting into the story at this point. Jesus has been telling the disciples some of the things that are about to happen. And then from verse 27 he says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Perfect, here we go. This is, this is the bit. It's Peter. I love Peter. Peter is one of those people who is sort of he gets his feet, he's in with two feet and he's acting before his brain is caught up with him. Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the conference twice, you will deny me three times. And, but he said emphatically, if I must if, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. In other words, I'd rather die before than deny you. And then this is the bit that people forget. The end of that verse 31 says, and they all, meaning the disciples, says the same. Peter gets a bit of a wag wreck because he said that. But actually, all the other disciples agree with him. And then if we just skip ahead, so some more of the narrative happens, and then if we skip ahead to verse 66, you know, Peter's there going, not me, Lord. I'm not going to let you down. And then we get to verse 66, and it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, all the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I need no more understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway in the hot room. And the servant girl saw him and began again saying to the bystanders, this, this man, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you see. And immediately the cock broke a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the cock rose twice, and he was and he broke out of So, Peter, in one set of circumstances when he's got Jesus with him, and he's going with the Lord, and it's all going well, eventually going, and you know, um, Jesus is going to fall away, and you know, look at him, he goes, No, Lord, no, I'm not. And then just a few verses later, the circumstances have changed, he's under pressure, he's in a different place, and he denies him. He fails. Again, it's an example of how it's comparatively easy to trust in God when it's all going well, but if we're in a time of disappointment, of loneliness, or uncertainty, in a new environment, the inconsistencies of our hearts might well be revealed. And it's great when we are all together here at church, but it might be different when we're at work 
or regurgitate or explore. And then from there, that's the place where we wrestle out the series of offer. That's where we know what our faith actually is. Right, so I'm now going to move on to the second point, which is that inconsistency is not an isolated thing. In Romans 14, which I'm not going to read from particularly, just one verse, Paul reminds the Romans that he writes into, and the readers he's writing to, because he got passed around many churches, that there are many debatable matters and inconsistencies about food and drink. They were arguing about that kind of thing. And in verse 7 he says, For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies. Um, to himself alone. The tremendous challenge of this cha that chapter is that whatever we do for good or fail, that help or hinder someone who is on the pathway of faith. <coughs> you are either the kind of person who's thinking it's easy to be good in, or it's easy to be bad in. There are a few people who are neutral. We're either leading people on in faith, or we're having a detrimental effect on them. I have to say, when I get to it, like this has been, um, you know, Dave said to me in, in, in the past, you know, a phrase that he knows is, maybe you've never preached an unloved truth. What I'm about to talk about has been really, really challenging. I struggle with this. And this next, next verse was particularly challenging. So the scriptures make it clear that one day, we're saved. We know the Lord. We have faith in Him. We're saved. But we're still going to have to give an account of our actions. And we're not going to merely answer for our own failures, but for how our inconsistencies have had an effect on people. And I can back that up with a scripture, particularly for people like me, who are teachers of the Word. There is a verse, James. Verse 1 that says, let not, many, let not many of you become teachers, for he who teaches will be judged with greater strictness. Ouch. I will answer to God for the way I taught and the effect of the teaching on the lives of the And Abraham is thinking, we're going to go back to this story in Genesis 20 and focus on that again. Abraham's inconsistency is a bit like a pebble on a pond that ripples around. And the ripples have reached further than we realise. First, he's affected Sarah. He's put her in moral danger. What has actually happened is that because he said that Sarah is his sister, and although you know Sarah is 90 odd at this point, the, the biblical commentaries say that she was uncommonly beautiful. Yeah. I've met my two old women who are beautiful. There are, there are some. And <laughs> she is beautiful. So Abimelech wants her. His culture is that because he's the king, he's allowed to have harm. He has a group of women he has sex with. And he wants her to be part of that. And what Abraham is doing in all that he thinks to save her and to save himself is to have her as part of that. 
But by doing that, he's risking his wife's own chastity to save himself. Now, we might not have done anything as dramatic as that. But the spiritual life, I'm going to speak to husbands for a minute, even as a single woman, I feel like God wants me to say this, so I'm going to kind of say it. Um, the spiritual life of husbands affects the spiritual life of their wives, and therefore the children that they have. So if a man's affection towards Jesus calls, that is going to have an effect on those around him. For those of us that are married, Just because I'm single does not mean that my inconsistencies are not alone. They do affect those around me. They affect my friends, my family, and my work colleagues, those I come into contact with. Secondly, Abraham's inconsistency affected the house of Abimelech. God intervened to stop Abimelech from committing adultery. He tells them that that um, Abraham, that Sarah is Abraham's wife. And then God also closes the rooms of the house of the there, so, yeah, so that the women can't conceive, in order to protect the promised heritage of Isaac that is about to come. They don't want any, they, the reason for doing that is that there's no question of what Isaac's parents might be. Now what's interesting is although obviously in a Benelax culture it's perfectly fine and dandy for him to have a hiring of women, there is a moral framework that it would have been likely living by. It's not okay for any of the women in the hiring to be married. They have to be single. So Benelax knows he can't take a woman's wife, he's horrified when he realises that Sarah is married. And it's interesting, isn't it, the concern that somebody like Abimelech, who is ungodly, has for the married woman. And how little, at this point, Abraham appears to have for it. And there's that very sort of sad verse in verse 9, which I'm going to go back and read. Then Abimelech called to Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? But you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. And this is the phrase that jumped out at me. If you given to underline or highlighting in the Bible, you might want to do that. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. <coughs> and Abimelech didn't share Abraham's faith or his moral framework. The biblical absolutes that were to be the standard for Abraham's life, you know, they didn't apply to Abimelech. But Abimelech, standing back from this, knew that it wasn't how Abraham should be behaving. And isn't that true of our friends and colleagues and family and non believers? They might say to us, and I've had this happen, and it pulls me up short when it, when it has happened. And they might say, you know, I'm not a Christian, and I don't share your beliefs, but I'm surprised to hear you speak that word. Or to use that word. Or to watch that TV program. Or to go to that club. And actually, they might not actually say it, but you know who they're thinking it. 
And it's a bit of a tragedy that the non-Christian world can define our ethics for us better than we can. And sometimes we can grow happy with the inconsistencies, happy with the wrong living, and it remains for the secular world to confront us with the necessity for change. You know, I've come to church on a Sunday and during the worship, because you know, when we're here and, and we're together, and I felt it this morning during the worship, because God is everywhere and God is everywhere in time. But sometimes God manifests his presence with us in a way that's tangible, it's easy to connect with. And often what God will do in those times is he will highlight something to you. It often it could be something deeply personal. And he speaks clearly to us about it. And I call it in, in this next bit that thing. <laughs> so whatever that thing is. And you will all know if you have one that what the thing is. And we know it's sin, and God's making it very clear when we're in his presence with his people that it's sin. And we get convicted. And what we're in here is true, where we know that we need to deal with it, we're motivated to deal with it. And then when we leave, we start trying to avoid it. We minimise it. We might say to ourselves, let's just look at the inconsistency. It's how I am. It's a quirk of my personality. And then this is a hard one, and I know that there can be doctrinal differences that are acceptable. There are lots of decisions. But sometimes we might decide to say to us, oh, this is not ideal, just a difference in doctrine. I, I think differently from this person about this issue, so it's fine. We've all got them, and we all, all try to hide them. And then not only is it that thing, it then somehow becomes my thing. And I isolate myself. And then maybe Tuesday morning at work, someone who doesn't share my face notices that thing about me. And they might say, you never used to do that. That's affecting the whole workplace. You are doing things that you all want to do. And Alistair Begg and the, the past, when he preached on this passage, the last time he preached on it, on what I could comment, it was back in 1984. What he had to say about the culture, considering it was nearly 40 years ago, very, very pertinent today. He talked about chameleon Christianity. What he means by that is, a chameleon is a lizard that can change its skin colour according to its surroundings. And often, the church will do that. It starts to blend in with the culture that it's in. And he said that he felt that that time, it was the greatest threat to face the church at the present time, more than anything else, more than any external attack on God's people. And he drew attention to Ephesians 5.8. For once, note past tense, you were in darkness, but now, present tense, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Familiar, I've got another 
five minutes ago, so I'm on to my third point. So the third point I want to make, us to notice, is the explanation that Abraham gave for his failure. So they were like that sin in verse 10. Basically, what is Abraham? What were you doing? Why did you do what you did? And I want us to look at and break down what his answer is, his excuse, as it were. We're looking at verses 11 to 13. Now, the translation I've chosen doesn't actually translate it quite this way, but other translations, he said, I said, but in some translation it says, I said to myself, which implies that he's deciding this in isolation from the rest. <coughs> The Bible says, you know, many places in, in, in Proverbs, sort of words to the effect of wisdom is found in the counsel of many. So if we isolate ourselves, we are likely to go off on one. We're in danger of coming up with a solution to a problem that might not be the godly solution. So I suggest that might be one way in which Abraham went wrong. He thought to himself, how am I going, how am I going to react to this situation? How am I going to protect Sarah? Which is what I think his motivation was, to be fair to him. Then he says, there is surely no fear of God in this place. And what is ironic is he was wrong. He was guilty of wrong thoughts, which led inevitably to wrong actions. So although Abimelech is of, you know, an ungodly man, he's for ungodly people. He clearly does fear God, and he clearly has some moral framework. He knows that he shouldn't have um, Sarah in his heart if she lied on him. So he's misjudged him. You could argue, it like he's showing a greater fear of God at that point than Abraham. Then Abraham says, they will kill me because of my wife. So, He's guilty, perhaps of selfishness, because he wanted to spare his life. And he's guilty of fear of man. He is more afraid of what Abimelech is going to do than what God is going to do. Why, when he's had the walk of faith that he's had, did he not pray to God and say, God, I think that I'm endangering, you know, Sarah and I are endangering this land. What do you want me to do? What he has done, he's actually come up with his own solution. How many times have we done that when we're in the pressure? I've talked many times before, one of the things that I struggle with is in my Christian life is I like to tack God on to the side. I like to be in charge and put my solution, and then when there's a gap, and I can't do it, I go, well, God! And then God will point out that perhaps I should have done it in his way from the beginning. And this is what happens, and I think we're in greater danger of this happening, when we disconnect from the people of God. And when we become more afraid of what people will think of us, then we are afraid of what God thinks of us. Do I care more about what God thinks of me than I care about what my friends and colleagues think about me? Abraham was more afraid of what Abimelech could do 
some more old wood thing. He was guilty of a lack of faith. He didn't believe that God was intervening on my heart. And actually, God intervened to sort out the mess he created. <clears throat> he appeared here, he speaks to an unbeliever in Rome to sort all God's things out. How often have you said, I'm never going to do that again? How long was it until you did it again? If we're going to walk the path of faith, there aren't levels. You're not a baby Christian or a sort of half-footed Christian. Well, I come to church on Sunday, but I don't really do anything the other days. I'm kind of half in, half out. That doesn't exist. That doesn't exist in the Bible. There is one standard <coughs> which is conformity to Jesus Christ. And I'm reminded there of Romans 12, 12. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the living of the mind. Now I'm aware, as I was writing this, this is quite a heavy word. And you could come away from this thinking, oh, what loads to do. I'm so far away from where I should be. I've got loads of work to do. But I want to remind us of something that, that reminded me of something that Keith brought up in Genesis about five years ago. This is a long time ago when I saw this. When I get words like this, my tendency, because of that self reliant tendency that I have, is I want to come up with an action plan for how I'm going to make it better. <coughs> But I want us to remind us about the, the, yeah, the right way to do this. So a quote that, that, that Keith quoted by D.A. Carson at the time, this is on my phone, this is what occurred to me as I'm writing this, so I'm going to switch to my phone for a minute. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven efforts, and I want you to just hang on to that phrase, grace-driven efforts, People do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, delight in the world, in the world. We drift towards compromise, we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of what's self control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we hope to escape legalism. We slide towards godlessness. And convince ourselves to deliver it. So again, that's a bit of an ouch quote. But the other thing that, that Keith, I think Keith came up with, because I can't find this in quotes, I think it must have been Keith that said this, is there is grace to an effort. So it's not all God, we don't just know our hearts will get It's our effort that, driven by God's grace, given by what Jesus did on the cross for us. And we have that as a free gift. Driven by that, we need to have some effort. And what Keith said was, there's a dependent responsibility. So we have a responsibility to do these things, to keep ourselves on the path. But it's a dependent responsibility. We cannot do it without prayer, obedience to Scripture, getting into the Scripture. Faith and delight in the Lord. Another time when I preached on that, another analogy that I'm used to this, where I, I talked about the Puritans who called the spiritual disciplines the means of grace, that's what they referred to as. 
And it's a bit like getting under a shower. In order to receive the grace of God and to be able to walk the path, we have to get ourselves into the place where we can receive it. And that place is often when we pray and we read our Bible. And, and one more that I have back to, one of the things that I was emphasizing then, being together in fellowship. One more to forget sometimes. Because together, we're better able to look at that. And that's what I have to say. So, um, thank you for listening to me.